Hey friends, Brian here real quick. I just wanted to apologize. Um, I forgot to hit the record button before recording this uh, week's podcast because I turned my alarm off because I wasn't doing a podcast for a couple of weeks. So uh, the audio of this will have to be ripped from YouTube and it's never as good as when it comes to the mixer like it is right now. So I just wanted to say I'm sorry for uh, forgetting to hit the record button. Um, The audio will probably be fine, but if it isn't, I apologize. And uh, regardless of all that, I hope you enjoy the show. It was a great episode with uh, the designer of um, Objects in Space. So thank you again for for listening and uh, enjoy the show. Tonight's show is sponsored by Bar Corridor at Lassell Station in Carruthers Circle. Karaoke every Friday and Saturday night and happy hour over 4 to 6 p.m. station time every day. Come down to the Corridor. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Space Game Junkie Podcast. I, as always, am your co-host, Brian, and joining us, as always, is your co-host, Jim. One ping only. Uh, your co-host, Spaz. Hello. And your co-host, Hunter. Do you really think that the off-world colonies are like a golden land of opportunity and adventure? Like, I doubt it's really a golden land. I think it's probably like that movie, The Island, where people sign up to go and they're just never seen again because they actually go to like a hamburger. Uh, so the green is human. Are you talking about the, that Ewan McGregor uh, movie from like a yes. decade ago? Yeah, that was a great yeah. movie, actually. Right. But but all the people in Blade Runner that like sign up to, to go to the off world paradise, they, they actually like go to an organ harvesting. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Say goodbye to grandma. So friends, we have going to the colonies. Oh no! Yeah, I don't don't know. Have have any of you guys seen uh, Battle Angel yet? No, no, but I want anyone. Okay, there's a thing. I hear. I don't know in the movie. I don't know what they do, but there there's a there's very much an off world colonies aspect of the anime. So it'll be interesting to see if they kept that in the movie or not. I, I won't wreck it for anybody that hasn't seen it, but. I'm curious. I do want to... Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, Friends, we have a guest this week. Joining us from Sydney, Australia, is the lead developer and co-designer of Objects in Space. Is it Alyssa? Is that how you say it? Yep, that's right. Yay! I'm terrible with names. Welcome, Alyssa, and thank you so much. He really is. I really am. Uh, Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um... Also, I think there is kind of an unofficial thing about the off-world colonies because David Peoples, who co-wrote Blade Runner, then did Soldier in 1998, and it was clearly supposed yes. to be kind of the same universe. So I always picture the off-world colonies as just these absolutely horrible places, just like in Soldier. It's, like a, it's just like a junk round. Yeah, yeah, I read about that, and I've always thought, like, how cool would it be to see, like, just one-off random stories that take place in other universes? But, like, it's never been officially made that the movie Soldier, starring Kurt Russell, is actually the the same, but it's is, kind of rumored to be. Yeah, yeah very similar. And it, is, But, you know, the you whole Master like Chief spinner. story. But the whole Master Chief story draws very much on the Soldier movie as well. If you watch some of the ma- the Halo stuff. Uh, yeah, if you, if you, if you consider the genetic manipulation of 
John one one seven, then yeah, there's there's a lot of similarities. Well, it's there. it's like that that whole beginning thing where it's like here here's all the Take genetically kids. engineered soldiers that are in like boot camp inside of a gray room, right, for the longest time, and then and then it's like okay, well now it's time to like you know put your armor on and see if you die or not, and yeah, it, it's it's like up to that point, it was like a mirror of soldier for me. It was like very wow, similar, very, very yeah. similar. Yeah, I can see. Also, that. was Mary also another thing. in that one? Is that the one I'm thinking? Is that the right one I'm thinking of? Soldier with Kurt no. This Russell? was an animated thing. Oh, with oh. with Kurt Russell. Oh, you think about uh, Soldier? Uh, well, it definitely had Kurt Russell. It was 1990. I remember going to the theater to see it. Uh, yeah, I never saw that one. It's it's a product of its times. Oh, you know, it's got uh, Jason Scott Lee. That's right. It's the uh, oh my god, Jason Scott Lee. I don't know if you're familiar with that guy. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard that yeah. in a while. Uh, so, folks, before we get to our topic, let's just hit out. Let's just some bat some news out of the park real quick. Uh, first off, a correction. A few weeks ago, we did a show where I tried to rattle off um, games that were abandoned and still going and whatnot, and I presumed that Galactos had been abandoned because, like, their website hadn't been updated in years, neither had their social media. Well, apparently they're still working on it, you know? So, I mean, apparently they go to shows and they still demo it and they're still, like, so, so apparently it's how many, how many, how many, How many air quotes is apparently you got going on over there, Brian? A lot, a lot. But <laughs> I, spoke, I spoke to the developer on their Steam Greenlight page, and they say that the game is very much in development. So, yay. Um, Well, good for uh, them. Other big piece of news is Interstellar Prime has launched their Kickstarter as of a couple of days ago. It's a little slow going, so go over there and check that out if you want to kick them a few bucks. Uh, As of today, March 19th, Battlestar Galactica, Deadlock, Sin and Sacrifice, their last DLC for Season 1, they're calling it, has been released. Uh, Yeah, I'm really excited to try it out. Oh, I can't wait. And you can get it in a bundle, by the way. I never so save a little bit. If you've already bought some of the DLC, you can get that bundle deal and save a little bit more. I think that's actually an Australian game too. I, I think so. I think I, I think Black Lab is a, is also in Australia. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And uh finally, just a minor piece of news, but it's kind of adorable. The drone race the drone game uh Nimbatus, you might recall is kind of a drone combat game. They've added a fully fledged racing mode to the game. Like that's kind of awesome, so I can't wait to try that out. Uh, you know, so, and uh, uh, you know, there's just like a little, little minor thing. Um, okay. They're also bringing Halo, Halo to the PC. But it's just a little. It's not. It's fine. It's not. Are there spaceships deal. in there somewhere? Does that like fall under our purview? Does that fall under our wheelhouse? It can. It it can. Mm. Mm. There, there is, there is, there is. Uh, I do believe there is a mission. In at least, I think, in Reach, a single spaceship. mission. But you know what? It slides in under the radar. But you know, it's huge gaming news, and it's it's close. <laughs> it is huge. It is huge news. I will actually finally be able to play a Halo game for the first time. I am quite excited about that because <laughs> I've never played any of them, as far as I can remember. Um, so, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us to talk about uh, the amazing objects in space. Folks, if you're not aware of what objects in space is, let's say it's a mix of, uh, I like to say it's a mix of Red Storm Rising and Elite. But uh, it's kind of better than both. It's definitely better than Elite. 
Definitely. Definitely better than Leap. Very high praise. Thank you. Well, you guys have an economy that actually does shit. Excuse my language. Like, it works. <laughs> like, your economy actually isn't just numbers that mean nothing. <laughs> we're we're kind of bitter on Elite here. <laughs> For various Fair reasons. Enough. Yeah. I didn't Fair. actually play much of Elite. I, pl- I played... Raven! <laughs> I played the second one. Um, uh a bit, but I, I was just incredibly bad at it. I, I don't know why. Like, oh, you mean, up, uh, uh, you, you mean Frontier, the second Elite game? Yeah, like, it, even though I got so much even though I'm so much more into the idea of space trading and open world stuff, I still found myself continuously going back to, like, TIE Fighter and then not <laughs> instead of instead of Elite. And well, TIE Fighter is so much more straightforward. TIE Fighter is so much more straightforward. It's like, go and kill this really thing. good flat controls. Oh, like, it God, just yes. felt really good. Oh, it's it's still one of my favorite games because it has some of the best dogfighting. Like, yeah, in in like thirty years of space of space combat, it still has some of the best dogfighting. It it just feels so. You're absolutely right. It just feels so. Anyway, this is not the Tie Fighter show. We could talk about Tie Fighter all day <laughs> if you let me. <laughs> so let's not. We also we already have questions from the audience. Hang on a second. Uh, let's just get those out of the way first. Has uh, OIS sold enough to put the possibility of DLC or a sequel on the scope? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not supposed to talk about sales, I don't think. Oh, um, okay. But, That's fine. Uh, well, I mean, we do actually have a publisher. so <laughs> um, it's, it's actually our first game with a publisher, so it's sort of a bit strange to get used to. We've, uh, we've previously done stuff entirely indie, whereas in this case it's sort of, um, yeah. Well, you can't talk about sales, but have you bought a yacht yet? <laughs> I have not bought a yacht yet, no. Okay, so you're uh, not a there yet. Right? Or a mini sub. Look, I mean, if I hit the point where I've got, you know, plenty of money, I will definitely buy, you know, a small uh, personal submersible, probably yes. two person, I think. Like, that. that's much more my speed than a yacht. Awesome. That's, that's also nice. a great oh. band name, Personal Submersible. Oh, <laughs> that actually is a great band name. You're absolutely right. With their first uh, hit, the yeah, mini sub and me, there's <laughs> something like development we want to do. Like this is very much our. We just see how it goes. So, so how long we've we been doing this show, Brian? Since 2012, six years, twice since 2013. It, yeah, so six years. Yeah. And and how many episodes was it that we were into it when I started howling that nobody was making a submarine in space game? It was fairly early. I think maybe 20 episodes in. Maybe. Yeah, so so basically, I prayed this game into existence. So <laughs> there, there well, you go. You probably literally did, because the funny thing is that, um, uh, well, not literally, literally, but uh, in 2013 was when we first started building the prototype for 2015. Other people coming on to do art and things like that, because uh, for the most part, neither of us are artists. <laughs> but um, blog, you know, I, I see some some like old favorites of ours. There's like a that old Star Trek game which uh, I forget the name of. And then there's... uh... Okay, is that... Yeah, all right. Which one? Yeah, all right. So I was... The other one that I was thinking, um, Brian, what was was that space game that it comes up all the time and it it worked with Breach? Rules uh, of Engagement, one and two. You know the one I'm talking... Yeah, Rules of Engagement. I don't know. Have you you seen Rules of Engagement? Because it's it's like EGA Trek ported to windows three one and turned up to 11 
It's like there's so much oh. UI on the screen, it's like indecipherable. No, not at all. Although this sounds like it would very much have been my thing, and I wish I'd seen it. You, yeah, you and they they had it? a second game that was called mm-hmm. Breach that was that was like an XCOM sort of thing, like a very early XCOM Laser Squad kind of deal. And the two games, if you had them both installed, then the the spaceship command game when you did a boarding action would actually reach over and invoke the breach game and like yeah. load that up and and you could actually play through the the boarding action and then it would go back to the original game once if, that was over if you've never played rules if you've never played rules of engagement you could get it on abandoned war sites and it works flawlessly in dosbox you should definitely yeah I'm, and I'm the manual now actually and the manuals are the best manuals I've ever read for any game. They're exquisite. That's so cool. It's it's worth owning the physical version just for the man the multiple manuals because <laughs> there are like three of them, one just for training. And um, I th- it sounds like it sounds like it would be so up your alley. You should definitely. Try. And the interface is so clearly Elcars as well. Uh, right. Yeah, look, I put a I put a screenshot of what I was talking about in the the green room. Yes. Thing. That's. Oh God! There's yes. so much UI going. I love it though. In, in three twenty by two hundred too. That's the that's, that's my youth that's right there. To do. That's my youth. Oh my God! Oh, that's, actually, that's, that's awesome. Actually, I think that's the first game because the first game you didn't have the quadrants. Like the first game, it was one screen at a time. But with the second game, you can have different things in different quadrants, which makes things even a little more complicated. <laughs> Yeah, we we did have the developer of this on here at one point, didn't we? A long time ago, I was able to talk to the developer and the designer of that game, and it was a just a wonderful conversation, if I recall correctly. Just just so great. Yeah, you you yeah we've well we love that's the thing that amazes me about this show is we've had some shocking guests on here (laughs) that people I would have never thought that we would have talked to. It's like, yeah, you know, people that people like programming like NASA flight computers, and oh yeah, well, I knocked out a video game on the side. <laughs> yeah, who was who was that guy? That older guy who was like grandpa game developer. Yeah, he, he had. He, I I think it's the guy who made. Sorry to interrupt. I think it's the guy who made the Starfleet games. Who yeah, right, he was talking was about like all the like the uh, satellites and, and maybe or maybe not he saw aliens, but he couldn't confirm or deny. Like that guy. Had some of the coolest stories. It, it turned into more about like, tell us more about the aliens, Grandpa, than his old. Yeah, game. it was. It's <laughs> it was like UFOs so are real. You can admit it. You can tell us. <laughs> um, and it, well, that and uh, oh god, it just escaped me. Um, god, I love that it was guy. the guy that the guy that made Empire? Who was who, that? Wasn't the same guy, right? It was a different dude. No, that um, was his partner. Um, Mark. Oh, okay. And then we talked to him later. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, that we, we, shocking. Yeah. Anyway, like back that, to wait, uh, the, the nineteen, the really old game. Wow. Oh yeah, uh, the the good old. Rules, oh, and the rules. guy that made Star Crusaders that that blew my mm-hmm. mind. Uh, we yeah. could have talked to him like three more hours. Get, getting the guy, been... getting the folks who worked on those older games is really tough. But when we get them on, it's just such a treat because they have such a history behind them. That uh, yeah. Well, yeah. you were talking. You were talking about going back to Tie Fighter. Like we had uh, Dave Westman on. And for me, that was like meeting my childhood idol. Like we got to get a stream with him where he takes us through. The oh my balance god! Of, where he takes us through the balance of power campaigns once and for all. That's yeah, what we have yeah. To you do. show us how to win 
You show us how to win Westman because it's impossible. God damn it! We, anyway, we have he, he we've we've invited him on because we had a, a we do a co-op play thing on Thursday nights, and we've been re-inviting him. You know, it's just like please come on because we played through X-wing versus Tie Fighter, but we got to this one mission in this in like the end part of the game, and yeah. we could not beat it. And it's like, oh, Dave, come on. You made this thing. It was like the seventh mission of the Rebel campaign, and we just... And the campaign's only like 10 or 12 missions, and we couldn't get through it. It was terrible. It's like a thousand gunboats show up. There's like (laughs) missiles everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so speaking of of, uh, co-op stuff, so uh, the... What it was like at .9 something that you enabled uh, local LAN multiplayer in objects and stuff. How's how's yeah. that working? Um, so objects was always designed to be multiplayer. Like um, it's something where really early on in development, um, as a weird irony, I, because we'd been building the the framework so that like you could put the because we knew we were going to do like Arduino support and stuff like that pretty early on, like right uh, right before we showed it for the first time in public, um, we actually had the framework and the, the game engine built so that for instance, like um, the command to say burn your main engine or plot a course is it's all tethered through something. So it can then go back out through like local button presses through networking or through serial ports for, for Arduinos. Um, You're, are you serious? And, yeah. yeah. Did, did you not see the command console that they built and they were touring? I, I, I missed part of that. Like, Wow. Yeah, we've got an like an entire physical desk built on five Arduinos that's got like lights and toggle switches, and it all works. You can control the entire game from your home-built spacecraft, uh, like console. So Look, where do I you was... configure? Wow. Yeah, Sorry, where do you just... configure that at? Because whenever I in the game, whenever I pull up the PDA, and you know, I, I look on, on, at the keybind stuff, and I'm pretty limited in what I can bind there. Like the things that you have to use the arrow keys for, I'm kind of stuck with the arrow keys. I, I was going to completely redo the binding. So I don't know if that's stuff that's kind of hidden that I have to address in the file and the game will just pick it up, but it's not in the GUI or, or what. So there, there's that. So if I start introducing all the Arduino stuff or, you know, God knows what else um, it is, where do I go to configure this stuff at? Um, if every time you actually run the game, it creates a text file, which tells you a complete list of all of the Arduino commands that you can go via serial. Um, and we've exposed some of those to key bindings, but there are some that are completely not relevant for key bindings. And, um, we've had requests recently to add more of them. So I'm going to be adding more things that you can bind keys to. Um, there are a few keys that are hard coded with the client though, um, that it presents a lot of problems if we sort of map different keys to it. Um, but, um, yeah, probably in the next version, I'll be adding more keys um, for the key binding, but you can also do it manually in the config file. Like it's all text mode. Uh, even the even all the game's config stuff is entirely in text. Uh, yeah, because uh, some of the things that I wanted to rebind, you know, like arrow keys, things like that. Um, it, although I I really do wish that uh, that the, there was a little bit more mouse functionality that was going on, because uh, well, what one of the things that you do that kind of throws me off. And, and it's like, I get used to it, but it's, um, but if I pull up a certain window, like the PDA, 
right? Then it changes the feel of the mouse because I'm confined into the window of the PDA and I don't interact with the rest of the screen anymore. And it, it's a thing of like, oh, okay, I'm in this mode. So m- now my mouse feels weird. But then whenever I close that and I go back out, then the, you know, the mouse has re- run of the whole screen again. And yeah, the reason I'm, for that, um, it's actually to do with the fact that, um, and this is something that honestly we didn't think about until the game was out. And it's something that I'm going to try and fix fairly soon. But basically like if you're moving over the entire um, like width and breadth of your screen, and the screen you're using in game is very small and narrow, like a tablet, then it feels sluggish on the x-axis. But honestly, it's kind of one of those things where you, when you're in beta developing a game, you tend to spend so much time just getting used to the interface that you stop noticing which things feel a bit funny. So it's something like there's a few things like that where even with our beta testers who'd been you know playing it till they blew in the face, they were in the same situation as us. Right. So, yeah, because um, if it if it just didn't trap the mouse into the sub window that I'm in then, you know, the mouse would be like consistent feel all the time. But I don't know if there's a reason that you, that you're trapping it in there though. So there is a design uh, reason. Yeah. Okay. So the one other thing that I would definitely add to the, to the PDA is we had a discussion about how you can go full MCON and shut everything off. So then the, uh, the ETA to reach the next waypoint instead of being expressed in game time is actually in real time. And then I forget who it was that said it, but they were like, oh, that's so you can use a stopwatch like they, like they did in Hunt for Red October. And you actually you know click your stopwatch and then you know like, okay, I got like two minutes until the turn point. So then I got to turn my stuff back on, that kind of thing. Um, I, I just, I really wish that there was a stopwatch built into the UI somewhere so that I could do that. Then Brian, Brian's hunting for a physical stopwatch. Mechanical stopwatches are expensive. I want like the kind they had in hunt for at October, you know, those big shiny thing. Yeah. They're like a hundred bucks. They're not cheap. Those, those mechanical stopwatches, but I want one now, now that I know that that's what your game does. I want two seconds to the narrows or (laughs) turn whatever that 18 degrees. (laughs) I, I always think of Hunt for October when playing your game. I'll At this point, honest. I should mention, maybe, maybe we can get some of our people to, uh, oh, I don't know, buy some of the stuff on our store. We've got some merch there. Might help. <laughs> I would oh, yeah. use, fund I would, brands buying a pocket watch. I would not use that no. money to fund buying a, a, a I, mechanical I know, stopwatch. <laughs> no, actually, actually, but they Brian, could get I, limited edition that would objects in space stopwatches. You know what? I would buy the hell out of that. Sell I would Brian, buy the hell out how of else are you? How else are you going to reenact your like passion for being a Russian submarine commander with a Scottish, with a Scottish accent? Yes, we sail into history because I am Russian. We sail into history. <laughs> your mother is a Russian comrades. We sail into history. Uh, one of my friends, who's also a submarine nut, is actually Russian, um, and every time we'd watch the hunt for Red October. Um, he would wince. He said, like, he could deal with the Scottish accent from the guy who's supposed to be Russian, but he said that uh, Sean Connery delivering those few lines in Russian just bastardizes it so badly. Oh, he said no. it's absolutely cringeworthy. It's true. Oh, no. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so we have a couple more questions from the audience. Um, yeah. First off, uh, is the okay? Wait a minute. Uh, is the entire text conversation storyline can be extracted for proofreading because 
Someone's a speed reader and wants to fix all your misspellings? <laughs> what? There, um, I, it is actually entirely in text. Um, like I said, every every part of the game's configuration that isn't hard-coded in, in the C++ um, is in t- uh, literally .text files. Um, and yes, it can be it can easily be proofread and whatnot. We've had a few people do stuff like that already. <laughs> One of the problems that we've had with the game is that it is so like we began it as a side project between various other things that we were um, you know that were a bit more mainstream, I suppose. Um, and we have like I'm the only programmer on it, um, and it's taken me four years to do it. Uh, we we have basically my brother and I co-designing it, and we've had. Uh, there have been 12 writers who worked on the project with us. Oh, wow. Um, and basically they, the, the stories that they would submit would be in kind of like in, in, in Word doc type format, Google doc format. Um, and then they would get translated through our editing tools into the, the text interface, etc. And all of that was done by my brother. So Lee has been working on, like along with designing and balancing everything, he also had to put all that stuff in. So it's one of those things where even though, especially throughout beta, we were dealing with like finding small typos and things like that, there's a lot of it still in there because there ends up being, I think there's 100,000 words of, I don't know, 100,000 lines, I think. I can't remember. I did a word count list on all of the stories at one point and all of the news articles. And there are many, many novels worth of text in there. Uh, so yeah, I think it'll probably be a while before we find all of the, all of the typo stuff, unfortunately. But um, yeah, it's it's look, honestly, we're an absolutely tiny team, and we decided that what would be a really cool idea would be to do a huge open world game with a full narrative. Um, and it turns out that's really quite difficult. But it works. I mean, your story works at least the little bit I've I've seen because I've had to restart several times. Uh, the little of it I've seen is very fleshed out, very very yeah, well done. Thanks. And, we, and talking we, we had a we had an internal wiki from the start, and oh, we but we both kind of sat down to figure out you know what's this world going to be, what's the story going to be, etc. Um, and you know we wanted to do something that was a bit different in that we didn't want the player to be the person like you're not Luke Skywalker, you are some guy trying to get along in this extremely complicated right. world full of politics and and um, uh, issues going on. Sorry. I wanted to ask you something specific. You probably know what yeah, it is. Sure. You're probably going to realize what it is. Um, in a lot of games, when you make a choice to do a thing, you make that choice and you just go on with your life. Nothing ever happens. There's no consequences except everything involving that mission that you made a choice of. When you take on a terrorist <laughs> who's offering you a lot of money to fly her him or her, I think it's a her, out of Maru. And every time you go back to Maru, they remember that you were the one that did that. That's not something you usually run into in a game like this. Uh, so I was shocked. <laughs> what? How did the decision to have your decisions remembered to such an extent, like how did that make its way into the game? Because it's fascinating um, and frustrating at the same time. Yeah, it, it is like, I think one of the things is we figured this game was quite niche. And so we wanted to do a whole bunch of things that we'd been talking about for ages, but had never had an appropriate space to put it into, uh, figuratively speaking. 
And so one of the things that we wanted to do was we wanted an awful lot of decisions, most of which had only very minor consequences. But as a poet, we didn't want to make it too obvious um, that your decisions had consequences. We didn't want to telegraph it like a telltale game or something where it goes, Clementine will remember that. Um, and we also wanted to try and make it a bit more lifelike in terms of that you don't always know what the outcome of your decisions are going to be. And we usually try to, if it's something like the, the, the terrorist or, or something like that, we've always tried to at least give you the idea that something is off with this person and that you're probably best leaving them alone because there may not be a good outcome. Um, but we, we wanted to sort of have the game continue to run through so that your choices are consistent but then try to sort of slight, for the most part, minimize what they are. Like you can definitely, there are certain actions you can take that really screw things up for you. Like, um, you know, you can basically be on a blacklist so you get shot at if you enter certain sectors. But then, of course, because the game doesn't have a linear plot that forces you to go to different sectors at any given point in the story, you can continue to play the game and say, for instance, just entirely avoid Carruthers Circle. And we kind of wanted to feel like if you kept making shitty choices... Um, your, the world would sort of encroach in on you a bit. Like if you keep flying around just doing whatever and helping random people, um, even when they seem to be doing something nefarious, there has to be kind of consequences for that. And we didn't want it to be game over consequences, but we wanted it to be something that affected your ability to to work as a freelance pirate. I think like, um, you know, the uh, freelance captain, like just sort of, uh, we, I guess we were thinking a bit like, uh, you know, in Firefly, there's, there's always the complaint that, you know, the verse is getting smaller, etc. They screw over one person and then another person, and then it slowly sort of, they find themselves with less and less work that they can do. So it's a, it's a case like mom said, like, choose your friends wisely because you'll be judged by who you associate. Yeah. And we also, um, I mean, there are a few characters that we put in there that, um, if you act a certain way around them, then you get continued work from them later on. And you may simply never know that there was an option that you got that. And the funny thing is like in retrospect, like I said, there's an enormous amount of content in the game and a lot of it players are never going to see because some of it's time-based too. Like there'll be certain missions where if you happen to be in like Sagan's lights, um, you know, three weeks into the game, then there might be a particular story that plays out that you can be a part of. But unless you're there at that particular place in time, you won't see it. So it's from a game design perspective, like from a purely mercenary sort of we're going to make content and sell it in a game perspective is probably a really poor choice because it means there's a lot of content in there that some players will find and others won't. But we just kind of went, fuck it. <laughs> no, the only <laughs> world to feel different than anything we'd seen before. And so we wanted the world to have all these things happening that not everyone would find. So that when two players were talking afterwards, they go, oh, I, I ran into this guy in this sector and this happened. And then somebody else is sort of going like, oh, I, I didn't have that happen or I didn't meet that guy or I told him to bugger off. Yeah, the other game that that your game reminds me of theirs and theirs reminds me of yours is uh, 3030 Death War, which mm. is another game that we really like around here. Um, because it it does the, you know, you're, you're a captain of a small ship and you fly around and you're trying to make ends meet, yet there's a larger story and such that's going on. But it's also one of the very rare games that lets you get off the ship, walk around the space station, go in the bar. You know, there, there's a bunch of characters standing around the bar. You can have conversations with them. And I said the wrong thing to to a, like a, a worm-looking thing at the bar. You talk shit to him, and then whenever I undocked, he undocked behind me and shot me down. 
So, you know, it's Great it's like stuff. there's there's things that's going on. So if you haven't played that game, I, I would right. strongly recommend, you know, because it, it's, yeah. Well, I had a follow I did have a follow-up question about the whole terrorist Maru nonsense. Um, will they eventually forget what, what a schmuck you were and just eventually leave you alone? Or are they always going to be like, there he is! Get him! Um, or will... I'm- go ahead. It depends on it depends on the situation. We we tailored that per story, and keeping in mind that like um, most of the specifics of stories were done by Lee. So if I give you a definitive answer, I may end up being slightly wrong. But um, <laughs> a lot of the time, when we were going through these stories, it'd be hey, so with this story, I want to have this outcome where you can end up where like you know this private militia of ships will will fuck you up if you go into any of the sectors controlled by this family. Um, oh. So there's a few where that happens and some of them continue indefinitely if it's really bad, but we tried to make sure that those ones, for instance, um, like I'm trying to remember which one it is, but there's one story where you can choose to screw over both parties and walk away with like uh, a fairly absurd amount of money. Um, But, you know, you have to figure, we hope that if you're about to try and rip people off for like 10,000 credits um, at that point, you the consequences of doing that are going to be pretty extreme. The problem so is, uh, I was going to say 10,000 sounds like a lot. And then you start needing to repair things. To repair your ship, yeah. <laughs> it's not just the external repairs. It's all the little components you got to buy to fix your crap. It's like, I had all yeah. these credits. Now, wait, wait, where'd my money go? God damn it. That was amazing. Though. Yeah. We're actually, there, there is something else, which, um, uh, it's something we're probably going to put in in 1.1 um, for that reason. And we'd intended to put it in earlier, but it was something that was, it was an idea that we'd never fully fleshed out. Um, but you, I don't know if you've run into any derelict ships as part of stories. I've seen them on, on the map as like, I've seen one or two. And the first time I saw one, this other ship hailed me and go, it's mine. Don't good. Don't, don't touch it. I'm like, yeah. all right, all right, all right. So you, you can find junk and scrap throughout the world. Um, right. but you get, you can find, uh, cargo from them mostly. Uh, but we're going to add it so that you can basically find collections of scrap, um, collections of like components and things like that. Oh, uh, nice. I don't know why there was this image that stuck in my head of, um, I can't believe I'm going to mention this, but you know, the pilot episode of, uh, Star Trek Voyager where they turn up and they hail, Neelix and get him like in his trash ship full of junk, like desperately trying to keep, you know, keep them away from all of his stuff. I kind of like the idea. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I kind of like the idea of um, that when you're traveling around too, it might be, hey, here's a derelict ship, and when you board it, you can basically get all of their spare components to give you more things to sort of uh, keep your ship flying. That's pretty. That's a great idea because you. I I've started flying around. I start like buying a component or two whenever I have a little bit of extra money, just so I have it on hand. Yeah, I mean, when I'm I'm actually playing the game seriously for any length of time, I almost always like just buy even if it's cheap, crappy components. I'll make sure that I've got a couple of really common ones on hand, just so exactly. that I can fix things if I need to without having to like yank things out of different modules. And, and yeah, things- now in in my real spaceship the screws would never get put back in the face plate because that takes too long. <laughs> that's dangerous though. So it, that's dangerous. It d- doesn't matter. Asking for trouble. Cause right you, there. cause you know, 
those no, it's the, it's those Millennium Falcon modifications that happen. Remember, it used to have all that pretty armor on the outside, and then it's just gone, so they can quickly access. <sighs> that's that's how that happens. It's the falconing. You that's have to change those parts too many times. It's the falconing. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, let's see. We have another question from the audience. Uh, and I, I've been wondering about this too. Is there a time limit in the game? Uh, and I do, do recall reading something about there being three months, I think. Yeah, so there effectively is, but in terms of the game doesn't stop at three months. What happens is that there's basically three months worth of narrative stories and news articles and political things going on. Um, and at which point the, the big political story that's happening has has come to a head and you get news articles sort of explaining uh, what's been going on and how they affect the world. Um, you so, can keep playing past that point, though. So, like, so if, you're a, if you're a participant in those things, whenever you dock at the station and read the news, is it does it mention you in there? If, if not by name, you can read the article and be like, oh, yeah, I'm that guy. Oh yeah, like if there are, um, even though a lot of the stories are really minor, it might be as simple as you know, there's this person who wants to get from one station to another, and they're a bit weird. Um, whereas there are certainly lots of stories where um, you can be a larger participant in something that's going on politically, and if that happens, then yeah, there will be news articles that pop up, um, you know, describing some renegade freighter captain who did this or that this, this event happened and you go, yeah, I did that. I, I brought that guy back to his own world so we could do this or something. So, so getting back to the repairs, I, I've, I've been dying to know, how did you come up with like the schematics for each different um, thing, like a RCS or a, a generator or a, uh, a, or a, a battery and then where did you come up with these very specific types of parts that don't really exist um, for each thing yeah well i mean obviously we, we we couldn't use real parts it wouldn't necessarily work very well and so much of the stuff is fictional anyway um but we did did any of you ever play light speed or it's follow-up hyperspeed hell yeah and, oh my yeah. god so, you're right Oh, I forgot about yep. that. But now that you mentioned that, it's like, oh, it's all coming back. Oh, Jesus. Oh, it is all yeah, that. So we played that when we were. Oh, kids. my God. Um, and we always liked the way the, com- the, com- the engine room had a bunch of components you can move in and out. And it was really simple because they couldn't really get, like, they were either destroyed or they weren't. And you couldn't really do much. But you could do stuff where you could put in better components in some cases. There were a handful that you basically had a good and a bad component of each type. And we liked that idea, but we wanted to take it further. So uh, at that point, I sat down to figure out, okay, we want like a central big component for each thing. And certain ones are unique. So for instance, um, the uh, like an M relay is only used for, um, actually, I'm trying to remember now, I think this is only used for, uh, for communications or sensors. Uh, then you've got things like a generic computer object, which go in the middle of some of the modules. And then those ones are really sturdy and hard to destroy. So like if someone really hits you with a lot of EMPs or you go through a nasty nebula, you can end up with a lot of dead components, but you'll probably still end up with the really expensive ones still working. And then you have to sort of create the all the components around the outside so that they work. And what we wanted to do was um, we kind of figured because you'd be upgrading bits of modules as well, we, we came up with the idea of having, um, I guess... You can see it's very hard to describe without actually having a visual on screen, but basically you've got um, 
the components sit in uh, internally, they're referred to as um, sets. So like there's set A, B, and C. And visually, when you see them, it's like they're connected via those little uh, lines that light up when you've got all the parts in place for one line. And then right, if you have right. enough lines, it increases the efficiency of your module. So um, there are situations where oh, like I having see. a smaller number of active lines, but with, a be- with better components is going to be more optimal. And other situations where having more components, even if they're not so good, will end up being better. Is there a way you could learn that or is it just trial and error? A combination of the two. The Infopedia has a fair bit of information about it. Uh, mm, and all okay. of the stats that tell you that are there, but um, yeah, honestly, it's the it's the kind of thing where I wish we'd I wish we'd had time to write like a two hundred page manual because the engine room is really you know, way more complexity. I would buy is. that manual if you sold a physical copy of the ma- of a manual for this game. Hell yeah, I'd buy it. I'd love to. Like I, I was I was thinking, depending on how we go in the next couple of months. At the moment, obviously, I'm spending most of my most of my time sort of. Um, you know, answering emails and, and responding to things and, and uh, working on the next, like, uh, patches and things like that. Um, but being able to actually write an engineering guide sounds like a useful thing. In fact, um, one of the when we first started showing the game off with all the consoles and things like that, we went to um, a couple of PAX Australia's. Uh, we went to uh, PAX Prime and PAX East, I think, as well. And so the flyers that we actually put together to advertise the game, the handouts... Um, are these are actually an ad flyer for the series Mark III Light Freighter, and we did the thing like it's a nineteen seventies um, like uh, flyer for like a you know a crappy Datsun or something like that. Um, so what we kind of wanted to do, if we had the time and resources to do it, and we still may, is to actually build like a um, you know when you have a car and you've got the 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 mechanics guide, the owner's manual that's got all yeah. the details about how you do self repair. That, but for a Series Three Light Freighter. Oh, God, I would I would buy that in a heartbeat. Maybe consider doing it as a manual slash art book. That might be a good draw. Yeah, that would probably be a good way to do it. Yeah, that'd be like that'd be a good piece of DLC, like something you don't necessarily need but want. You know? Yeah, that'd be cool. In the tutorial stuff, because there's uh, a lot of the components they'll have additional empty slots and the thing functions, right? But you could purchase additional things and slot them in, but it doesn't really tell me what they do just yet. So is that part of the tutorial thing that where you'll run it? And I, by the way, I, about the tutorial, I like how that's actually organic because you'll run into a character and they'll say, Hey, let me tell you about stealth or whatever and how this works. So that's kind of interesting. You deliver that conversationally with people thank you yeah we i mean like we we have a love-hate relationship with tutorials and so we spent ages <laughs> like um, working on the tutorial and trying to make sure it was not too intense and that we did we we wanted to at least passingly cover a lot of the details but it's just such a huge game that like if we did a grand theft auto thing and slowly unlocked all of the individual mechanics of the game and showed you how to use them that'd be like a four or five hour tutorial so we I ended was, up deciding that what we would do is just kind of do the main tutorial is like 40 minutes and it's skippable. And it basically just gives you enough to sort of point you in the direction of, you know, start playing with components in the engine room and things like that. God, I would think for this game, you you just issue eter- tutorials entirely because this is the type of game for people who like when they got 
F-19 stealth fire, they went home and read the manual cover to cover before they even loaded up the game. At least that was me. Honestly, if I was entirely designing it on my own, I probably would have done that. Um, (laughs) But then it would have been a really poor business decision. I think there's there's a degree to which with a niche game like this, you have to actually accept that not not everyone who plays it is going to have like played all of these 90s hardcore games and they right. won't necessarily realize that you know uh, it's just not going to be used to it so yeah i'm glad we did the tutorial for sure but um it's certainly something that i didn't really fight against it but it was very much more um lee going yeah we need a good tutorial for this this is one of the most intensely complicated games like <laughs> Well, it's kind of nice that the tutorial doesn't tell you everything. So you're still like, oh, God, what do I do now? Oh, God, how do I fix this? Oh, geez. So there's still a lot of discovery, you know, which is which is nice. That's really what you want. I mean, you want to basically get the person off the ground, get them like their own ship and get them like, oh, do this couple missions and just go and just, you know, do that. And then now it's up to you. (laughs) You have the basics. You know how to fly and fix. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and um, with regard to the like not knowing what the components do, etc. Um, if you start slotting components in and out, and then look at the power room as you're doing it, you can see what the emissions, what the power usage, and what the efficiency is set to. And mm-hmm. when you click on the actual components, you can also see what sort of modifiers they have. Oh, wow! So, for instance, um, you may have noticed that there are like four or five brands that build components. And each brand will have a speciality. So, for instance, um, one, one of them, I think it's Octan, which is a reference to, like, Lego stuff of the 90s. Um, they produce, like, really cheap, crappy components, I think. I think at least I think it's Octan. It's been a while since I looked at this. Um, and then there are other components, like other manufacturers whose stuff is really high on efficiency or is very low power usage or um, produces very few emissions. So, like, if you wanted to create a really hardcore stealth ship, um, you find the brand of components and um, basically buy all of the components you need for your modules exclusively with that brand and you'll get oh, wow. you know, the, the, the optimal sort of build for, for stealth or whatever. So when you were balancing that out, did you like make a spreadsheet of trade-offs that, you know, yeah. that this is our baseline component and this is plus one to this, minus one to this? Yeah, so what we actually did was that um, like... Um, because for the most part, the way it initially worked with uh, was that the the combat and the mechanics was initially designed by me, um, mostly because I had more experience with submarine games and had a much firmer idea of exactly what that really basic sort of gameplay loop needed to be. Um, whereas the the economics, the contracts, and the way things would operate on stations were sort of initially done by Lee. Uh, and then as time progressed and I was spending more of my time coding, then he did all the systems design. So he did all the balancing and stuff like that. And how he would do it is, first of all, he's a very manual person. And so he has probably by now hundreds of bits of paper sitting in his room with like pen and paper where he's like drawn different things down. Um, and then after he'd figured out some of that stuff on paper, he um, I'd put together a spreadsheet for him where he would put these components, these benefits, and then he could look at those numbers and see how they add up and then sort of make sure that they seem balanced, right? Uh, and then I built a couple of scripts that take those exported spreadsheets and turn and generate the, the actual game data. So we went through about three iterations and a few minor tweaks, I think, of like, okay, how are these components balancing out? 
and one of our testing sessions, we actually got some people who had played the game quite a bit in beta and basically said, okay, um, here is an enormous amount of money, like $200,000 or something. Uh, and we've like, go and build the largest number of, like, you've got all these components, try to build the stealthiest ship you can. And then we'd sort of see what those modules look like and then, you know, make sure that they seem to actually fit with uh, everything that we expected. That's pretty bloody amazing. Oh, we have more so questions. You, so when you started this project. Sorry, Jim, Jim, we have questions okay. from the chat, so ask yours and then right. I'll get to those. Oh, I, I was just wondering, like, what what your uh, your competency in geometry and, and trigonometry was before and, and now, because <laughs> I'm sure that there is a hell of a lot of math that, that got acquired there definitely was, and to be honest, I'm just not good at math, and I, I definitely wasn't to begin with. Um, and it's actually what gave me pause making the game. In fact, um, because the 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 basic idea, as I said, I'd like prototyped in 2013, which is when we were making our first game. And what stopped me was I got to all the space travel stuff and went like, "This is beyond what I think I can do in terms of math." Um, however, the next game that we did ended up being a top-down cyberpunk open world shooter so think like um think like gta 1 and 2 like that kind of top down thing where it's like little sprites on the ground and then you got like buildings extruding above you and it's raining and shit like that um and making that game because it was a fast action game that had things moving about in 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 space i learned a lot more about um how to do that kind of math hmm. and uh so i actually after that point, went okay. I think I can probably do this now, and I still had to learn a lot. In fact, one of my friends is a um, uh, does math at uni, and so a few times I turned to him and went, uh, "What's the best way to do this?" And some of those some of those algorithms ended up being things that I even I couldn't figure out because I couldn't explain them to him very well. And um, one of them actually only got added when it was in early access because one of the fans was. Um, like had looked at something about it and actually just emailed and said, Hey, you probably want an equation a bit more like this for this calculation. And just like, Whoa, uh, awesome. Thank you. You are absolutely right. That works much better. How neat. Okay. So a couple questions from the audience. Uh, which one of you guys is, ex is an expanse fan? Because apparently there's a ship in the game named the JSA Corey. <laughs> uh, that's me. Um, yeah, actually, we're in the middle of developing the game, and one of my friends had um, got to play it for the first time, and said, uh, "Like, I'm presuming you've you've read the Expanse." And I said, "What? No, like you haven't read the Expanse." And so put me onto them, and like they're making a TV series, and so uh, yeah, I ended up reading like all of the books that were out, and then got really heavily into the TV series, and we actually managed to get. Um, uh, one of the writers of the books to like to check out the the consoles um, while we were showing them around, which was seriously cool. Oh my god, um, that's amazing! Yeah, uh, but yeah, so I ended up putting a few nods to the Expanse in there. But like, we began it before I'd read the Expanse or knew anything about it. But it was really great to sort of find a sci-fi world that felt a lot like what we were doing. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. There's, I, there is a lot of references to other pop culture in there, though. Um, some of them are really quite silly and some of them are, uh, you know, unsubtle and whatnot, but uh, yeah. And the other question we have so far from the chat is, would you ever consider adding VR to this game? 
<laughs> we get that a bit, but honestly, um, it would have to be a full sequel that was rebuilt from scratch for VR. Like um, the graphics rendering we have is incredibly primitive, and all of the ship, like all of the game's models that we've rendered, all of the the, the rooms and whatnot, they stop the moment you turn left. Like if you enter into the room editing debug mode and you turn the camera so much as like two degrees to one angle, like to one side, uh, you know, the walls end. So uh, VR wouldn't really, uh, <laughs> there wouldn't be much to see at this point. But what carried the game from 2D into 3D? Because, uh, you know, like I said before, looking at the early stuff that you were doing, it was all 2D. And then suddenly, bang, it's uh, ironically, it was partly to speed up development, which it didn't do. <laughs> Just, uh... <laughs> so what had happened was that, um, so here's the thing, because uh, at, the, at the point that I was doing this prototype, all of our games were on iOS, like all of the development work I'd, uh, I'd done had done that. And so um, the early prototype, like those 2D screenshots that you've seen, um, you'll notice those ones are 16 by 9, except that there's no interactable objects in the left and the right section of the screen. And the reason being that that prototype was built so that if you play it on a PC, you get the full 16.9, but if you play it on iPad, which it also worked for, then it only showed the middle section at 4 by 3 and it didn't actually affect your, um, your ability to play it. So the initial version, the idea was that we, um, we, did it in, we did it in 2D, we did it in pixel art, and this would also mean that, like, all of the space stations could be fairly quickly put together because I'm not good at pixel art, but I'm not bad at it. I didn't do those mock-ups you're seeing, by the way, our artist did, mm. uh, which means that I could at least modify some of it and then like add more detail. And it meant that, for instance, talking to people was going to be a Mr. Potato Head type situation, which is exactly what we did in 3D anyway. Um, however, after, after we'd been doing that for a bit, um, I began to experiment with uh, rendering to little actual 320 by 200 screens in a 3D world. And we ended up deciding, the artist ended up pushing for it, going, I think we should move to 3D. We can make it look like an early 90s game, like you're playing um, you know, one of the very early um, 3D space games. And we liked that idea, especially because that was an aesthetic we hadn't seen much of at that point. Um, there's a bit more of it now, but... Uh, we also figured it would be faster because he could turn out 3D assets faster than he could draw pixel art. And that was the theory. And mm-hmm. when we added, when we moved to 3D, it ended up uh, basically meaning that more content started being added. Like, for instance, if we wrote those stories and we were doing pixel art Mr. Potato Head characters, it would have been much easier to do them. But we had to actually have distinct animated characters made in the character editor. There needed to be animations for them, whereas we could probably get away with, like, you know, blinking if they were just mm-hmm. little pixel art people. So in the end, it ended up um, dramatically increasing the workload. But I think it's a, I don't know, I, I, I have a feeling that when people see objects in space now in 3D, it has that, I think the aesthetics of the 3D give a better idea of what the game is. Plus on top of that, the other thing is, um, if you clicked on the monitors in the 2D version, it basically just jumped to a full screen mode so you could see the displays. Whereas with this, the fact that it zooms in and you can see all of the displays at once means that it's much easier to actually fly a ship. So just purely mm. in terms of the combat, I think the 3D is certainly not something I regret. So when you when you run this thing as a multi-Arduino setup, 
do you actually split the screens out into actual separate physical screens? No, what happens is you run the game, so the game still runs on your display, and then you have all of the the Arduinos, um, like, have are hooked up with lights and things like that. Okay. Um, so one of the other things I wanted to do, and I, again, this there is so much that I may end up doing, especially if it continues to sort of have people who play it over the course of the next couple of years, then, like, I still want to do this stuff. But one of the things I wanted to do was um, along with the serial interface, I wanted to open up a web interface. So for instance, if you've got some crappy old tablet somewhere, you could open it up, browse to it, and get like a web version of the nav map. Mm-hmm. Oh. And just have that running live. Um, oh, yes, please. And also like iPads. I wanted to do a native iPad client that does nothing but like the nav map or whatever. So even if you don't have Arduinos and stuff, I wanted to have it so you could get a bunch of touchscreen devices, have them next to your computer and just sort of expand the game. So even if you're playing it as single player you can connect those devices up and then sort of make your spaceship a bit more well, it's kind spaceship-y. of a, it's kind of amazing how prolific that's getting like i had never played one of the new jackbox games until recently with some friends over and the fact that you can just use your phone as a device to you know put in your answers and stuff you know as long as yeah, you're on the really same cool. wi-fi is amazing yeah i think like because i used to play you know you don't know jack way back and sure. someone mentioned playing it recently and then everyone picks up phones and does that and like that's a really good idea that's so cool yeah i'm gonna throw an idea out there that'll probably cause you trouble um so we've had people on the show before that do like the artemis space simulator and other similar games right so it's a multi-crewed spaceship oh, and spaz yeah. here actually worked on one so my thought though is since since you do have all the control stuff split out and whenever you do multiplayer, there's a server and then all the clients actually are sending controls to the server. Right. Um, so you could kind of not with great difficulty, probably turn this into a multi-station single, single ship. Right. So you get one person on the helm, one person on the nav, you know, somebody like dealing with the reactor and, and, you know, like switching chips and stuff. So uh, if you could split that out into multiple clients so that, you know, one of us could be actually steering the ship. The other person is, is like frantically trying to like plug different chips in and, and fix the down system kind of thing. I think that would be a hell of a convention game. So now, uh, what I was going to say on that, if I, if I can just interject for a second, Starship Horizons is something you should probably take a look at if you haven't already. Because that's exactly that same concept, uh, splitting the multi-crew into multiple people with multiple devices. Hmm. Well, okay, so that's actually the idea we had from the start. Even though the single-player component of the game doesn't really lend itself to that, um, we we intended that to be the case. And in fact, you can do it right now. Um, it's just not balanced for it. So, like, for instance, um, it takes some kludging, but if you take the multiplayer server and you plug in different things, you can actually all control the same ship. Nothing stops you from doing that. Um, it doesn't lock you. Like, I don't know if, if... Did any of you play Dangerous Waters? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, unlike Dangerous Waters, it doesn't lock you from viewing certain displays. So, for instance, you can if, if there's a server running and I'm connected and you're connected and we both click on the helm, we can both be hitting the same buttons and trying to fuck with each other, which is hilarious, but not very helpful. Um, but yeah, you can do that already. 
Um, oh, okay. See, I didn't it, know if it was just each person got their own ship or, it, or you it could It does mold. that by default. However, you can actually force it to, um, to put you in the same ship. So, for instance, um, none of the combat scenarios are balanced for it. And the other problem is that, like, frankly, I don't think there's enough to do in the sensor room, for instance, to really warrant that. But you can certainly have one person on a helm, one person on weapons, one person going to the engine room and stuff like that. Um, so it's something that, uh, like at the moment, what we have in multiplayer is really quite minimalist. Um, and yeah. Cause I think just two people is, is a blessing because then somebody can always keep their eyes on the helm while somebody else runs to like fix the, the, you know, whatever's on fire. And the- yeah, exactly. And going like, Hey, I really need to pull this, this. Thing. Can we turn this offline for you know twenty seconds while I quickly pull these components out or something? Um, but yeah, you can do that. And at this point, it's mostly just that I'd like to add a bit more functionality to some of the different consoles before you can do it. Um, so power room is something that I need to add more to. At the moment, you've got um, like um, you've got MCON mode, but what we want to do is split it up into uh, basically having say different power settings. So like power setting one might be everything is on. Power setting two might be like uh, your comms and your other emergency systems are off. Power like three might be everything that sensors and nav is off. Mm. So um, you could basically yeah, just have like have have like a uh, radio button for MCOM. So you get you have MCOM one, MCOM two, MCOM three, and yep, that's the idea. As you as you uh, click it, it gets worse. Yeah, pretty much. So that way you can you know very quickly, and you can bind those. The idea is you could bind those to hotkeys. So that's something that we're going to try and do in the next big feature update. I think. Oh, well, um, that that's, that's been on my list for a while. Yeah. Like, there... So I guess the. What's sorry? No, I was going to say there were times where I just wanted to turn like the engine off and nothing else, but the MCON mode turned pretty much everything off. <laughs> yeah. Just about. Yeah, well, uh, adding more granular power support is definitely on the list. Um, yeah, I mean, it, my current, uh, my current, like my giant um, to-do list, probably has about 150 things on it. And each time we go to a patch, like the, at the moment, we're basically doing. There are some features we're adding, but for the most part, we're just doing bug fixes at this point. There's still lots of things we need to fix up. We've got a few like graphical issues with the Linux version and stuff like that. But um, yeah, as we start getting away from the you know day zero it doesn't work on this system type fixes. Then we move further down to a lot of the different features we want to add. Um, I, I do have to ask you about one technical thing. When I sure. run the, I, I have a 1440p monitor and when I try right. and run, when I try and run the game in full screen, it runs it in 1080p in like the bottom left corner of the screen. Yeah, I got that too. I just edited the text file and it was okay though. Wait, what did you do? You, you crack open the objects in space dot CFG and just yeah, put in the resolution you. Oh, because I. But just yeah, I run in. I run into the same thing as well. Oh, I just started playing it in a window <laughs> because of that. <laughs> okay, I'll fix that. Right. Sorry, didn't know. I'll fix yeah. that right. I'm going to fix that right now. So objects is a really kind of strange one in terms of, like I said, we actually started the game in 2D and we started it using the same framework that we used for like little iOS games. And, um, but that like all of it's coded in C++. And when we started moving to 3D, part of the reason we did that is because the framework that we started using started supporting 3D, but it has very rudimentary 3D support. Like it was originally built for 
um, you know, for making mobile 3D games back before they looked incredible. And so one of the things that we sort of ran into was going, okay, all of the game logic, you know, 60,000 lines of code is in C++, so we can't, like, switch over to Unity or something like that at this point. Um, but uh, we do still want to be able to keep all of our work. So because we didn't have the resources to go and, like, rewrite all of it in C-sharp or something like that, um, we ended up using the render that it has. And because we're doing very, very intentionally retro-looking stuff, the render is fine. Like, you can... You can do those graphics in GLES instead of in full OpenGL, um, but it does sometimes present problems in that the the framework really was not built to do a game of this scale. So we've had to shoehorn a lot of stuff in, and honestly, some days I'm surprised that like we actually got it working at all. I but, mean, uh, I I only ran into that one bug that one time where you just leave a station and you get hailed by a pirate and then crash. But you guys fixed that like pretty quickly once the game was released. Yeah, uh, we've been um, like every time we get bug reports, it ends up going in my list, and I'll go right. If it's a crash, it's top of the list. If it's something that's game breaking, it's top of the list. And you know, it's it's like that for every game you release. Really, it's kind of there's all these things where like oh, I'd love to add this thing, but I really need to focus on the thing that stops some players from being able to enjoy it. So and do you guys have a Discord community, or is it all in the forums and? Yeah, uh, our fans made a Discord community when we hit early access, and we ended up sort of, it became the de facto official one that um, that I uh, usually idle in. You'll have to put a link in, uh, in our uh, main channel, Quarks, to, yeah, sure. so folks can head over there. I'll head over yeah, there. Yeah, I ended up yeah. finding uh, a lot of the time, especially when I'm working on the game, it ends up being a bit too distracting, but I'll usually sort of, like dive in and just chat sometimes or like especially because they've got a modding um they have like a modding channel and whatnot so i'll sometimes like come in and give tips or whatever i need to have there been mods made for this game already well it's a bit limited in what you can mod because like i said the entire game's in c plus plus there is no like um there's no exposed scripting language which means that um, you can build mods that overwrite all of the game's data, but anything that we've hard-coded is still actually quite limited um, to like not being able to be changed at this point, and we want to expose more of it. So what that means is, for instance, you can add new ships, you can add new sections of the galaxy, you can make new scenarios, you can make new space stations, um, but, for instance, you couldn't totally recode the way sensors work or something like that because that's all in, like built into the engine. Uh, but yeah, we actually had our first, the very first mod was before we even added mod support, someone changed what the helm display looked like so that, you know, the the thing that shows you which way your ship's facing and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. They changed it so you actually saw an image of the Ceres or the Proxima or the Enceladus. Um, oh, okay. That was very early on during early access. So those are the three ships you're able to buy in the game? Yeah, yeah. There's the series, which is your. We we actually sort of borrowed the the rough upgrade path um, from uh, things like Freelancer and Privateer in terms of we like the idea of that the series is kind of your all rounder, and then you've got the Proxima, which is a bit slower, but it's much beefier and carries more things, and then you've got the Enceladus, which carries less than the Proxima, more than the series, but is a Corvette, is much faster, and uh, yeah, is just generally the best ship in the game if you want to fight. And you can make money hunting bounties. There's a whole thing, right? So there, 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 oh, yeah, that is can. the thing you can do. Yeah. 
it, I'm it's still a bit time consuming because uh, but it, yeah you can I'm still saving yeah, it for a jump drive my own self <laughs> I'm just scared shitless of combat because anytime I even get like an EMP tossed at me, my ship is just so jacked up. Like maybe once I I have upgraded some and I have a little bit more of a durable ship, but for for now it's just like I just run like hell at any time anybody looks at me. Yeah, I would recommend getting a point defense laser if you can save up the money for it. But yeah. um, the- does that help with asteroids? Like, it does, you, yeah. If you fly oh, through good. asteroids and the point defense laser um, is, and you turn that system on, then most of the asteroids that come flying at you will just get knocked out before they hit you. Oh, um, so nice. Ha- so having oh. a point defense laser is actually really cool because it means that normally you might go, well, I can't go through that because it's an asteroid belt. You can go, I'll go through that. I might get hit by maybe one, but it's not going to be so bad. Oh. oh is there nice. a sensor upgrade at some point where when because whenever I'm flying through asteroids – it'll tell me, you know, what the density is of them. So, like, if I, if I stay in the less dense, then I don't get beat up as bad. But I just keep wishing that whenever I clicked on a sector that had terrain in it, that it would actually tell me what was there and instead of having to actually fly into it to see, you know, if I, if I could look ahead a little bit on the map and actually tell. But are there better sensors later that do that, or is that just not a feature? No, but that's that's... Probably a good thing to add. Yeah, because it's it's just like if you just hover the mouse over something and then like down in the bottom corner it would say, you know, fifteen percent density asteroids yeah. or something. And that that way I'm not wondering like what is that on the map and I have to fly into it to unfortunately discover that it was bad. Yeah, I actually think probably part of the reason that didn't pop up too often was that most of our beta testing was with the full color nav map, so you can see a bit more clearly what the different types are. Oh, and that that's what you get by upgrading and, your nav system. Yeah, whereas like by default you have the the, the terrible green hued or, or blue hued display. <laughs> Everything um, is blue. And, Everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we actually had people um, send us bug reports going, something's wrong. The, the, the moment I finished the tutorial, the nav map lost all its color. And um, <laughs> I mean, Well, that's what I was asking you guys about before we started the show. You know, I was yeah. like, why does his map look good and mine looks like shit? And, yeah, and it's because, you know, I've got the crappy start. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where, like, we didn't really think about it too hard. And we like the idea of that you, you start with, you know, your tutorial has a nice ship and then there's a few things that are much crappier and then sort of encourage you to upgrade. But yeah, we didn't sort of fully think through that some people wouldn't make the connection. They might actually think something was wrong or that their, yeah, that their shit was somehow broken. Yeah. Cause it like most of my playtime was in the alpha where it all, you know, like the undiscovered stuff was actually like a fog that was out there on the map and that, and none of that stuff was there anymore. And it's like, wow, this looks really different. What is Yeah, it's kind of funny how you go from this little pod that can't do much, but it has kind of a pretty map, to this freighter that can do a little more, but has a really ugly map. Yeah. <laughs> Super ugly. I was actually thinking I was thinking of doing a mod myself for the game that allows you to actually buy the remoras and actually fly them, like give them a couple of points of cargo space or something. So um, That would be funny. Know, it, would take, it would take quite a bit of work. I just thought... The idea of actually going, all right, I'm going to try and be a freighter captain with this tiny little pod that limits you to like 0.5 GMs a second is sufficiently absurd that I kind of want to see it. Like, what would you have to do to make it space legal? 
Um, (laughs) I mean, like to make it usable, I would need to add like two cargo pod slots or something like that. Um, Otherwise, I could more or less leave it be. I would need, I mean, obviously I'd need to change the game so that it allows you to undock with it. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not legal when you when you when you arrive, however many years in the future. Sorry, yeah, well, it's spoiler. Not registered. It's like, yeah, it's like you, you turn up and the things like uh, like this is not a valid registration. And one thing I like is how speaking of registration, I kind of like how you don't explain certain things and you have to find them out by discovering them. So like, I went through at least one playthrough just being Ceres pilot. The entire time. Now, no, you can go to another screen. Change change your name and your ship's name. Because I've been flying around like, I don't remember the name of my ship. I can't see it anywhere. Oh, they're going to scan this ship for cargo. Is that me? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) And then I hit the the tilde key one day. It's like, oh, God, I can change both my name and my ship's name. Hallelujah. (laughs) (laughs) We uh, we actually had one of our rule of thumbs for like uh, for developing the game was like we can add as much depth and complexity to any system we want as long as you don't need to know it to play the game. So like for instance, um, being able to rename your ship and being able to rename something was a feature I added relatively late because I just really wanted it, and the fact that it's like buried in the, the undock terminal wasn't really a concern because it's like this is not something you know that you need to know to play the game. Um, and by the same token, like if you really do not like the engine room and you can't repair things and you don't care about that sort of stuff, um, you can basically treat my ship has been disabled as going, oh, well, and hit the SOS button, get towed back, and you owe a couple thousand credits. Um, and then you can just sort of hit, you know, repair buttons on the starbase to do it manually. So even the complexity in the engine room is something that not every player needs to focus on. Wait, can you re- can repair internal components from the from that screen as well? Or I thought it was just external repairs you can do. For no, there, yeah, there is an option. There's system repair, which basically repairs the things that are broken. However, there are limitations for it. Like if you've completely destroyed components, I think it stops. Uh, it, it doesn't work properly. Oh like god, is that, it. is that the same um, thing with the tilde key? You hit the tilde, and it does the and it shows you the internal stuff. Like the the system repair because I could I did not see that before. All oh, right, all of the you mean all of the tabs on the. Um... I didn't oh, right, know yeah. there. I didn't know there were tabs. <laughs> yeah, well, you can click on them too. They're on the top left, the little icons, which is actually one of the issues that we had because obviously we're actually literally designing. There are multiple screens, but we're still designing UI for three twenty by two hundred. So, like you know, trying to actually. Even making the font so that it was actually usable at that resolution was had to be done manually, uh, and it certainly gave me a new appreciation for what '90s game developers did by making all of these incredibly complicated games that ran in 320 by 200. Yeah, once you once you play um, Rules of Engagement, once you give that a try, you'll be like, "Holy crap! How did they do this?" <laughs> but. I didn't know. Yeah, so wait, why are you trying to why are you trying to model the game in in three twenty? Out of curiosity. Oh, because um, that's the resolution at which. Uh, well, it's it actually not all three twenty by two hundred. Some of them are higher than that, like the nav maps higher and stuff. But um, when we first did initial tests of rendering virtual monitors in three D, we found that 
beyond a certain point, if you've got like four or five monitors that are rendering at like 640 by 480, it actually slows the game down hugely. Um, even on like a oh. fairly modern graphics card. And the reason being that um, like uh, graphics cards are primarily built to be able to go right here, are the textures, here are the objects, and then it just stores them. And so unless you need to reshuffle textures, um, you know, the pipeline from your system to the graphics card is fast, but it's not really fast. Whereas like if you've got four or five monitors on a screen, every single frame of the game, it's re-rendering a different texture, uploading it to your graphics card, and then putting it on the, the model again. So even though the game looks incredibly simplistic, it kind of takes a slightly, it takes a bit more graphics power than you would think for a game that looks like that. Especially like on the, on the, main, on the main screen, it's, it's spitting out, uh, like rewriting the textures to graphics memory 60 times a second. So, so what you're saying is you're basically, like, if there's four screens on my screen, you're rendering four separate screens and then compositing them onto one buffer to display as the 3D image then. Yeah, more or less. So like there, there'll be different models for each thing. Um, then I'm rendering through the GL pipeline the actual 2D display to create the like 320 by 200 display texture. Then... Um, it gets sent to the uh, graphics card, gets supplied to the object, which means that every frame it's updating the texture on objects, which is slower than you would think. So is the screen like it's a it's a polygon, and then you're texturing the polygon with the output of what the screen content would be? Yeah, so what we ended up doing was that we have like a virtual 2D renderer inside the game engine where I like, go like, this is a screen interface object. It's 320 by 200. I'm putting sprites on it and things like that. Um, and then every time I hit flip, it bakes out a uh, texture and then uploads it. And I mean, plenty of games do this, but they don't do it very much. Like, as in, if you played Alien Isolation or if you played like Doom 3 back in the day, there'll be diegetic screens in World where like you've got a monitor that's a 3D object and then it's rendering a little display in there. And some engines are really good at it. Like, Unreal has support for it at, right out the gate and can do it very, very fast. Um, but. It's uh, oh. yeah. When we had to actually write it manually, it ended up being quite quite difficult, and it's certainly yes. not as efficient as they like. Spaz, that must explain well, take... Genesis Alpha One and how it does that so well, because that's Unreal, right? It probably is. Yeah, like honestly, Unreal is a fantastic engine, and if I was doing a full sequel to this, I'd love to like, I don't know, I, I would love to do like Alien Isolation level graphics, but keep the retro look and do the whole thing in Unreal or something. But I mean, trying to find the. So it kind of gives you a, a respect for the old flight sims where they had like three different MFDs in the cockpit and they're all like updating them in real time. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. It's, it's, it's interesting. Cause like some games with some engines can do it very fast. Others can't. And because so much of objects was kind of built from scratch. Um, yeah. It's certainly been, it certainly uh, gives a sense of the, like, how difficult some of that stuff is. Yeah. I remember specifically EF uh, 2000 with its multiple MFDs, that, yeah. you know, actually updated in real time. And back in 1996, whenever that came out, that was like mind blowing, you know? Yeah, man. Talk, talk about a game that used every key on the keyboard three times <laughs> that <laughs> it was like it, it, much more primitive than Falcon four, except as complicated. I like but yeah, I remember that you had to use the numeric keypad to 
choose which screen you were going to zoom in. Like, you know, the one through and, nine keys, it was like different zones of your cock. And then you would like hit shift to move around on that MFD to select things on that MFD. Like you'd move. I remember little... playing that actually. Oh, I think it's... I was terrible at it. But I saw oh, it's, <laughs> it's easy to be terrible at it. It's very easy to be terrible yeah. at it. Uh, oh, we have another question from uh, the chat room. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to read it verbatim. What can you say about being on a station that can't use communications to radio other stations to check contracts or prices? So I guess what they're asking is, while you're in your ship and you can radio other stations for prices and contracts and stuff, they're wondering why you can't do that from a station. Uh, you want the in-universe answer or the like? Uh, whichever one you, whichever one answer. you want to give, whichever one you want to give. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess uh, in-universe is probably the same reason why, from your computer, fl- from your machine floating around, you have a three hundred board connection across the solar system. Um, <laughs> although amusingly, <laughs> although amusingly, we actually did simulate three hundred board for those connections, and it was too fast. So when you actually what? dial like a bulletin board, Wait it's a currently. It, it's actually that text is coming through at 75 bps no way wait a second <laughs> it needed to look slow like the text had to appear just about the same speed that you would read it oh um if you're a fast reader um but That's yeah amazing. in terms of reasons why we why we didn't do it um we the bbs was something that got added as a rent like it actually was not part of the original design, and it was something that I added at a certain point because I wanted to experiment with having a virtual in-game BBS. And Wait, there's, a, there's a BBS um, in the game. What? Wait, if what? You, if you are flying around in your ship, um, and you go to your comm screen and hail a starbase instead of getting like a human going, "Hey, what's going on?" Like when someone hails you, you get a little oh, virtual. Right thing right. which tells you the price of stuff on that station. Right. And I, I think this person is wondering why they can't do that from another station. Like, um, there's actually two reasons. And what, one of them was, frankly, that we just didn't put the thing in. But the other one was <laughs> that um, the, the, the economics of the game, it's not fully dynamic. We made that decision early on because we didn't want to. Um, we figured if we like if we built an entire fully functioning economy, we would spend ages debugging it because we've seen what happens when you do a fully virtual economy. Like, I don't know if you've read stories about them balancing like an early ecosystem and economy in Ultima online, but like that's the kind of thing we were afraid of happening, even just in a single player game. Um, so the result is that if you're actually docked at a station, um, the costs have not been determined for a station, like for other stations, until you undock. Which means that oh. until you undock, any information you got would have to be vague. Um, however, that said, we do actually want to put that vague stuff in there because it's a bit difficult to go, this is a good price to buy you know, human organs at this base, but I don't know where to sell it from. Um, so, Yeah, that's the problem yeah, I've actually, been having. One that's of the that's... things on my to-do list is basically I want to do like a... Um, uh, at the commerce terminal have like a sales list of which bases in, in at least the one sector, uh, like want particular goods. Cause that would be pretty easy to do. And I think oh, that'd be great. pretty much solve that problem. That'd be great. Cause yeah, that's, that's the one problem I've been having is like, Oh, this thing's below market value. I'll buy some. And now what? Yeah. <laughs> 
Like, well, we did if... want like um, the the Sorry. use of contracts is something we wanted to focus on. So it was much more right. like, yes, you can make money by manually buying and selling stuff, but it's really it's difficult. Like, if you're solely right. trying to make money without contracts, like, good luck. It, it the game really is kind of balanced for for contracts. Good. I mean, I prefer Not contracts. Saying, sometimes but... you just manually do it. Like, right. I prefer yeah, contracts, but I also happens. like. But I also like flying around with something in my hold to sell, you know? Yeah. So if I find something that's below yeah. market value, I will buy it and then hold on to it until I find some place to sell it that's that's better. <laughs> yeah, I do the same thing. Um, actually, something else I tend to do as well, um, unless I've got a completely full cargo, I usually buy a spare pod and I put some scrap metal in it. And the reason for that is that if you are getting, uh, if you're getting harassed by a pirate, you drop your cargo, and you can actually, you don't have to jettison everything. You can jettison a single pod, and if you jettison oh. like a pod full of scrap metal, the pirate will figure out that you've you've given them garbage. However, not until they've traveled over to it, picked up the cargo pod, opened it up, and realized. So, as like, if I can't afford weapons or point defense or something like that, then usually right from the start, I'll just carry some scrap metal. So you can dump it and then basically just leg it away from wherever the pirate is and hope that by the time he realizes he's been rumbled, um, you're like hidden in a nebula or docked at a station. That's you know what would be really idea. neat is if you were carrying a cargo hold of scrap and you could actually like just vent the scrap into space and then go MCON and drift away and they think they blew you. That would be really cool. Or maybe, did you, yeah, maybe put some kind of explosive under the scrap. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, so, um, of... sorry, sorry. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering, can we get one more NPC in the game? Cause I, I'm, I'm playing here and I notice like underneath, you know, it'll say who you're talking to and then what language, right? And I need a character named Sean Ramius and his language <laughs> is Scottish Russian. You could put that in for your friend that loves that movie. So, no, basically it says Russian, but he talks like this. So it'd be yeah, the, the Russian, the S I S H, you know, in the text. He T A L K S H L I K E. Russianish. Yeah, like type out how Sean Connery talks. And you walk up to him, and he just says one ping only. I wonder if we have a beard like that in the character models because oh. like the the characters are all like like I said Mr. Potato Head style so we have all the different variants of like hats and facial hair and hair and things like that. Yeah. Hey that's that that's another thing too and cuz I'm in a, a conversation window with somebody and that's like the one place where my mouse doesn't work in the you know yeah. cuz I got to switch over to the keypad if uh if I could just use my mouse to click uh yeah, the conversation options would be nice. Yeah, the main reason I haven't coded that was that um, all of the text rendering that you're seeing is manually created, like from scratch UI to simulate like text things appearing, and I don't have the capacity to like figure out what line of text or what character of text you've actually clicked on. Uh, okay. I would love to add that feature, but I looked at coding it and went like, that's probably a good solid couple of days or even a week's work. So it oh. sort of ended up being a lot tougher than it sounds. Because 
Damn. You know, buttons and UI objects are fine, but text is its own weird complex thing. And I'd need to have a whole bunch of different things. Like, is this, you know, is this character clickable, et cetera. Uh, okay. Hey, so you had mentioned uh, playing Dangerous Waters before. Have you played Cold Waters? Yes. In fact, I've been live tweeting, uh, not in a while, but I, I've been like live tweeting some of my sessions of it. Um, it's, I still wish it was first person like Dangerous Waters with proper controls, but there's, it's still really fun. Mm. Yeah, as long as it doesn't bother you being third person, you know, looking at the exterior view all the time. I think it, it did at first, but uh, oh, wait, I ended cold up just getting over it and just treating it as fun. Yeah. Cold Waters is third person, like, entirely? Like, there's nothing? Yeah. yeah. Like, what? It's, it's, it's weird. That's it's, so it's, weird. It's, like, it's halfway between a realistic sub-sim and, like, a third person action game. But um, it's like... Ever ever since like six eighty eight attacks like or even silent what was it, silent hunter? Or what was those yeah. really old like you could be you were in the Silent thing. Service maybe? Silent service, thank you. Like you were in the thing. What? Yeah. I will take you way back. El Elgato. Or oh, was yes. it just called Gato? No, it was Yeah, it was that was Gato. like the Apple it was, too. It was Gato, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh Gato. Yeah, Gato. Right, okay, yeah. So it's a it's a US subsim. I think yeah. I that was like an old Apple IIe CGA subsume. only. Yeah. I think that one was. I remember yeah. it being very CGA. That game. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, we have another question from the audience: Is the waveform analyzer to identify enemy ships supposed to be learned by trial and error, or is there more knowledge hidden in some manual? Oh yeah, that um, that know. brings up a thing I wanted to ask about too. But go ahead. Um. I don't think there's any serious documentation apart from looking up, like, I think it tells you that the individual spikes are from individual modules, but what you're actually looking at with that waveform, oh, and if you update your sensors, you get a bar, like an 80s sort of bar bar graph, like, you know, boombox type display instead of a a manual Ah. uh, thing. But uh, all of those spikes are real. It's not like garbage that looks nice. Um, every individual module on that ship, including ones that are active, the spikes indicate the amount of the emission and the frequency of them. Um, okay, so so in a normal submarine game, I would have like a detection book, and I so I'm I'm looking at my waterfall display, and I and I see okay this this is where their their sound profile is. So then I would match those spikes up to something that's in the book, and and then I could say okay that's a tanker because it yeah has. So it, is that is that a thing that goes on here? Like, if I have an unknown contact, I can actually look at the display and kind of guess at what he is, or is it more about like what systems he's got powered up? And it's more about systems. However, each individual ship has basically a baseline energy um, signature, and unlike a subsim where there's like multiple different lines for that, because you can customize the ships, there'll be one line which is the actual frequency. Um. So to give you an example, let me just pull this up here. Um, so if you imagine there's like there's one power spike, there's one emissions line that is that indicates the class of ship, and everything else depends it like is is per module that's active on the ship. So if I uh, load up, the so like if, so if they've got their weapons spun up, then there's always going to be a spike in a certain spot, and whenever I see a guy like that, it's like oh he's got his tubes. Yep. So for instance, um, 
the Ceres Mark I, which was an old chip that we don't actually have active at the moment, which is basically just a really crappy version of the default Ceres, has a system frequency of 21. Um, whereas if we go down to uh, the Enceladus, the system frequency is 29. So usually on the very, very bottom end of the frequencies is a spike that, if you look at it, it can tell you what it is in terms of class. So um, then if you go to the individual modules, they're all in the same, in the, in the same ballpark. So for instance, um, even though it's very hard from that spike to tell precisely the difference between like 27 and 29 degrees, uh, 27, 29 hertz or whatever, um, if you go to like modules for the main drive, for instance, um, so the GX1, the Galaxy 1 um, MPD thruster, has uh, its, its emissions frequency is 181. Uh, the GX Delta is 183. So if you actually output those numbers directly, uh, you could actually identify from those spikes the exact configuration of the ship you're going up against. Uh, as long as they've got the module on, because obviously if they don't have the main drive burning, you're not going to actually pick up the frequency of that main drive. So that's the theory. However, in practice, what effectively ends up happening is that even though that information is there, if you look at that waveform and you see a spike at a particular point, you can see, okay, that they're, they're spinning up weapons, they're spinning up a jump drive, that kind of thing. That's amazing. Okay, one second, folks. Um, we have to switch servers. Apparently, we're sounding a bit robotic, so give me one second. We're going to switch Discord servers, so hopefully uh, we sound a little better. Give me one second. Let us try the Singapore server to see if that, if that does us better. <laughs> Oh, Discord, we love you, but sometimes I swear <laughs> it can be a pain in the butt. It does sound better, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, so what are the next big things coming for the game that you have on your list? Uh, well, I think, I mean, we're going to have to see how we go, but for 1.1, probably the multiple power option, so you can add more granular stuff and probably... Well, not probably, definitely going to add more different uh, key bindings. You can like map to different things, so you can manually turn on and off uh, different systems or toggle them. Um, so yeah, probably a lot more granular control for flying is first up, uh, and then we're just going to have to see where we go from there. Because uh, I mean, part of it as well is also going to be like um, if we're if our sales are not doing well enough to be able to support full time development, neither of us are going to stop developing it because it's our baby, it's our passion project. Um, but it certainly means that it'll be more, you know, we work on our own time to do stuff as opposed to uh, being able to work on it full time. That's totally fair. Well, hopefully yeah, this... we, we don't plan to stop development. Like um, we're just going to keep going as long as there are things that we want to keep adding and that fans want to see with it. Well, I got to say, I mean, you had a pretty, um, to me at least from my outside perspective, it looked like a pretty good uh, early access um, period, and not only that, but like your final price, even coming out of early access, is not that high. It's clearly an impulse range for a, probably a decent amount. Yeah, of it's kind of what we were hoping for. Like, I mean, one of the problems with things is that people there is still very much like a 
um, people tend not to buy games over a certain price unless they fit certain categories. And for something that was niche like this, we had to balance like right. um, that. Obviously, we want to try and actually make money off it, um, at least enough to be able to continue development. Like, um, but we also knew that um, we, you know, we couldn't charge seventy bucks for it or something like that. Even though it has, I think, like to get. I think if you don't time compress, there's something like, uh, I can't remember how many solid days worth of playtime you would get each session for the three months, but it's quite a lot. But yeah, people tend not to buy games over a certain price. And so we had to try and sort of find a mid ground between we think this is fair. Um, and yet also, uh, you know, not charging too much for it. Yeah, because, I mean, I think I've been trying to sell a lot of people on it, and people are finding an easier time biting on it at the price it's at now than if you'd, say, been $5 more. or 10. It's really a fickle thing. Like, I don't know about yeah, you, it but, is. like, well, sorry, go ahead. Um, I mean, we ended up having this huge conversation with our publisher's marketing department about this as well, and, like, they had had a meeting with Steam, not about this game specifically, just about, you know, um, what games sell and what price points sort of hit that bell curve mark where any more than that and people stop impulse buying and, and stuff like that. And I mean, there is, there's always going to be people who wish list something and they just will wait, you know, two years until it's dropped to like five bucks in, an, in a flash <laughs> sale or something like that. Like there's always going to be those people. And that's fair. Cause I mean, sometimes it's not even a criticism of, of the game. It might just be like, for instance, I've got things on my wish list where, I don't think I'm going to like it that much. It's just too far outside what I normally play, but I'm mm -hmm. interested enough that, yeah. you know, if it's a couple of bucks on a sale, I might buy it. Or if I just happen to be flush with cash that month or something. Or if it's um, in a bundle and with like a few other yeah. things. You know. There was actually something else we discovered that it was really interesting. So like, like I said, this is our technically our fifth shipped game, although two of them were kind of like, one was like almost like a, it, in the old days, I probably would have called it like a total conversion or an expansion pack to the other one. Um, but one of the things that we found was that, um, especially with our more complicated games, if we sold them too cheap, we got worse reviews. Um, and the reason was that, like, let's say someone picked up the game on sale for four bucks. If you buy a game for four bucks, you tend to give it four bucks worth of your time because you go, like, what, this is confusing. I, why did I buy this? And you might put it down unless it's something that necessarily really is right up your alley. Um, and so we actually found that if we charge too small an amount, like if the sale goes too low for certain things, then we actually start getting worse reviews on steam. than if it's slightly more expensive and people go, well, I spent 20 bucks on this game. I'm going to spend a little bit more time to, you know, to, to give it time to grow on me rather than spending 99 cents and then going, eh, and dismissing it. Yeah, it's it's so weird. Like even when I, I don't know if you do this, but when I'm buying a game, if it's like ninety nine cents, I have no interest. Four ninety nine, well maybe. Eleven ninety nine, hey, you put some value on your game. I'm very interested, and it's within my impulse buy price. I will look at that. Yeah, it's so. Yeah, I weird. think I'm kind of similar. Like if I know what the game is and it's ninety nine cents for some reason, I might still buy it. But if I don't know what it is, if I see it very very cheap, I assume it's a very very tiny cheap game. What's yeah. wrong with it? Is that yeah. mentality of yeah. it's it's a dollar? What's wrong with it? It's is yeah. it an asset flip? You know, is it just someone took something from the Unity store and made like a 
like that cost five dollars, <laughs> and you're selling it yeah. for a dollar. Well, and it's well, and it's also a thing of the like she was saying when you get the people spend a little bit more for a game, so they've got the commitment to stick to it. And mm-hmm. a game like this, there's a learning curve. It's it's steep. Yeah. So you want somebody to to actually like try to figure it out rather than like five minutes and bounce off of. Yeah. And unfortunately you still get, you know, a lot of um, people who, you know, if they don't like something for a small amount, they'll then give it a shit review because they didn't give it the time to get to know it. It's just it, like, I can't imagine being a developer right now, to be honest with you. Cause there's just, like the, I don't know if it's we've a, ever drowned in this much competition. You know? It's weird. Like, I mean, to be honest, it's um, like it's something where I feel like game development is at a very critical point at the moment because there is a glut of games and all of them are almost always undercharged. Like, um, considering the amount of sales you might make off a, a fairly niche game like Objects in Space, we should probably sell it for 50 bucks. And if, even if we had a slightly small number of people buying it, that might make more sense, but we just can't do that. Unfortunately, one of the downsides of there being so many different games is that um, almost every game tends to be, if not underpriced at the beginning, underpriced very quickly. Like think of how quickly like big AAA games that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make and market will hit the bargain bin. Like even something, um, like that, like that like new Far Cry game. Games. Like that new Far Cry game, New Dawn, is already like ten or fifteen dollars off what it was when it came out a month or so ago. Yeah, like I, I don't think that games as they currently sit are actually sustainable, um, as a, as an industry, and something is going to give at some point. And we we're also sort of seeing the rather complicated um, thing of Steam having all these issues of other rival stores um, picking up. And it does make me sort of wonder what games are going to look like and if we're going to have some sort of crunch. Like, I don't think it's going to be one giant big crash, but we're going to hit a point where, and you're starting to see it already, where what suffers the most are mid-tier games. Like, people who make tiny little sort of cool, weird things, whether it's experimental stuff um, or, uh, like, just little sort of iPhone games or something. Uh, those are usually fine because you can spend... Five ten thousand dollars developing a tiny iPhone game, and you might make your money back, and you might not, but it's not a huge uh, risk. And frankly, if you're doing a giant AAA game, you almost get the same thing because, like, if Ubisoft does like a, a Watch Dogs game, even if the first one wasn't received very well, they are probably like it's a pretty fair bet they're going to make their money back or close to. Um, the problem becomes when you have this glut of games that people who are somewhere in the middle it becomes difficult. So if your game's going to cost two or $3 million to make, and then you're trying to sell it um, on steam, it might be 20, 30 bucks or something like that. And trying to actually get people to buy it, trying to notice it and then make your $2 million back becomes very, very difficult. So it almost makes more sense. Like if you were being purely mercenary about it to go, all right, I'm going to make giant multi-million dollar games, or I'm going to make tiny little, iPhone games because the middle ground is currently where I think the, the financial problems are. And that sucks because that's where a lot of the really interesting games I think actually are. Like ones that are small yeah. enough that they can do weird stuff and take risks. But they're also not like um, 
yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult. And I'm hoping that it finds a way out of it, but right well, now you kind of, you kind of end up with the flappy bird curse where it, yeah. it's like, I could, I could spend five years making one game or I could knock out a game every weekend and just play the numbers game you know, just keep throwing things against the wall. Eventually one's going to stick because if, if for a while there, the statistic was like 20,000, right? So if you put anything on steam, whether it was minimal effort or a a pretty good effort that you put in, you're going to sell around 20,000 copies. So why would you spend five years unless it's a passion project, right? But if you, if you're just trying to like iterate through some things and make some money, then, well, and we see what a, you know, a dump truck, of of crap ste- uh, you know steam has become now that they've lost all their standards so that that's a, a just a brutal market to be in because how do you get noticed because yeah. there's an avalanche of just stuff all the time well, that's not noteworthy and especially cuz like steam's algorithms are not very good in terms of um so probably once a week when i log into steam to do something other than work um, you know, I'll go through the discovery queue and it will go, I recommend this game to you because you've liked, you've played games with these oh tags. God. And despite the fact Ugh. that I tend to play a lot of games that like my focus, if I'm playing on PC, I tend to play management games or adventure games or like sort of mill sim and space sim type strategy stuff. And despite that, like just in our conversation um, today, you've told me two games that came out in the last couple of years that fit exactly the kind of games that I want to play and that I care about and that I'd never heard about. And so, so this is something that like, it feels like if I spent more time, um, you know, looking at uh, listening to podcasts about like the subgenres of game that I care about, no pun intended for once. Um, then you would, would never get your game done. Yeah, I'd never yeah. get my game done. But at the same time, there's things where I kind of feel like you would hope that that's what, you know, Steam's algorithms should do. Go, right, this is a game she probably like, and, like, and put it in front of me. But that didn't really happen. And it still no. doesn't seem to happen very much. What you, so what you got to do is just go... I just rely on people telling me. What you got to do is you just got to go to their new release list. Like, just their pure, unadulterated new release list and just go through that every couple of days. <laughs> That's that's really the only way anymore. <laughs> yeah, or, it's kind of a shame. But I mean, or look, what's I'm on trying Steam to be positive about it, though. No, I know. Um, I mean, there is, it, in a way, it's good for us players because there's just you know, we're not spoiled for choice. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly the case. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, one of the problems that I had was that a lot of the games that I wanted to play didn't exist, and so I started making games because I wanted to play those. And now. You know, I probably ended up coming out with maybe 10 or 15 different game ideas over the years, and about half of them have something very much like it now, so I can just pay some money and play it, which, you know, is always going to be more entertaining than, you know, having to struggle to make it, I think. It certainly means you can enjoy it a bit more than if you made it yourself. Nice. So is so Objects in Space going to go on the Epic store, Epic Game Store at all? Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. We did, we did talk about that at one point. There's, oh. The biggest problem is at the moment they're only doing Unreal games. However, they said they're opening it up to third-party oh. games afterwards. Oh, I didn't know So at the moment, they're, yeah, the only things on there run on the Unreal Engine, but they said when they announced it that they were going to be opening up to third-party games at some point. Um, and yet we're already on GOG and Steam. Um, and yeah, I have no idea what our publisher will decide in terms of what stores to go on, but if 
if they did decide to go on, uh, like generally speaking, like what will happen is we'll have a discussion about it and I'll say, okay, so we've, we've contacted these people and we're going to be on these stores, etc. Um, and if that, if they said, Hey, we want to release this on, on Epic game store, then yeah, we do that. Like, Oh, Panic is on, it's a cool idea. Panic is on Twitch says on objects in space Two should just be in the unreal engine. And there you go. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, if I ever got the chance to like, to do a, a, a full sequel, which had all of this stuff, but like do it in a really fancy graphics engine. Like I said, imagine something looking like alien isolation, but playing like objects in space. And that, that would be a dream for me. Yeah. Genesis. Album yeah. What I, also what I would, has, sorry. Go ahead. What I'd love to see is in objects in space too, if you put in a periscope view and then <laughs> you, you take some model submarines and just glue some bits on the outside. Like if you, if you look, I posted a picture in the green room. Uh, like I said, it's a screenshot of OIS two. It's a, a World War II submarine with like some rockets, tanks, and stuff <laughs> like bolted to the outside. So if you just had that like wiggly on a string, right? You just do full motion video, just great. like wave that in front of the camera. And uh, <laughs> have, have any of you noticed the um, the window that you can open up in the comms room? Yes. What is what is the purpose I, of that? I I know you can do that. I was because at one point I lost my sensor, and I was trying to like, can I use that to find the station? Because I couldn't find anything, and no. So. Um, it was actually something that happened when we were doing it very early on. Um, I can't remember who it was. Someone we were talking to was convinced that we were making a game that no one would want to play. I was like, you need to have windows. You need to be able to see out into space. Like, you need a window on your spaceship. <laughs> and I was kind of like, that's that's just not the type of operation we're running here. Um, and so partly as a joke, I got our artist to put that in, and then I wanted to test the ability to, like, have a button rig up to part of the model to open open up. So I figured I would do that and then just made it rotate because your, you know, your ship's uh, central point is rotating to try and generate gravity. So I figured kind of as a joke, it was like, yeah, sure, we'll have a window to your ship, but you're not going to want to use it. Well, you could sell a $20 Periscope DLC. It's like, if you really want a Periscope... No, I'd, honestly, I would appreciate, you know, if, if there was a Periscope in here. I don't know how you would work that, though, because then you'd need actual models for... Yeah, well, I mean, we've got 3D models for the ships. Like, if you actually look at the outside the windows of the space stations, you'll see various ships docked, and that's the main vessels of the game. Um, but yeah, you don't normally see them. You just see them as schematics. Oh, okay. I didn't realize you could actually see other objects out, out those windows. I just figured it was just like a spinning star field static thing. Oh, no, it's or only you, or like in the starbase. If you're at a starbase and you're in oh, okay. And you look out there, you're actually seeing and, sort of. Um, and sometimes there isn't a ship there, and sometimes there isn't a ship there at the start base. Yes, but some a lot of times there is, and sometimes it'll be your ship that you'll see out there. I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, it's it's getting about two hours. We should start wrapping it up. <laughs> um. So, Alyssa, where can uh, people find more information about your game, like beyond the Steam page, like? Do you have a Twitter? Um, do you like to share? Because you also you do have the website. Was it objects? Objectsgame.com is where Objects you can game. find that more information about the game. Uh, we've Thank got a you. discussion forum on there as well. Um, there is a Discord as well. Uh, I'll need to. I'll post a link to that, I suppose. And um, um, yeah, you can put that wherever it needs to be. 
Um, Objects Game on Twitter is our main Twitter account as well. And my personal account, which is mostly terrible puns, is uh, Expect Problems. Oh, what's a good pun? What's what's a good one you you found lately? I'm a, I'm a big I'm a big uh, fan of punny I, humor. I was following the Monterey Aquarium account because I happen to be a big fan of fish, and a lot of what they post is particularly terrible. And uh, they they throw in puns and stuff occasionally. And this morning they posted coral reef. Actually, I don't mind this at all. <laughs> nice. <laughs> You've actually been there. Yeah, it's the one from Star Trek Four, and one of my friends was like, "said Hey, you know the you know the Cetacean Institute from Star Trek Four? It's the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and it's got a Twitter account that posts puns." Yeah, like, this is good. Oh, that's wonderful. That's even more magical. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, so, folks, we're gonna wrap it up. Uh, usually, this is the part of the show where uh, we I talk about what we've been playing. But you were saying you haven't really been playing anything, and Hunter's not here. So we should probably just skip past that. Um, so let's just wrap it up. Just a couple of things, folks. Thursday on our stream, on our LAN party, we're going to be returning to Divinity Original Sin. Very excited about that. And next week on the show, we're going to be welcoming back Chris Park of... Is it Arkin or Arson? I can never remember. Does anyone know? Yeah, it's Arson. Arson? Uh, yeah. We're going to be welcoming. Thank you. We're going to be welcoming back Chris Park of Arson Games to talk AI War Two. Uh, now that he's back to work on that uh, after some personal issues, so we're very excited about that. Uh, and f- uh, just a couple little things. I forgot to hit the record button on my mixer, so I'm going to have to rip the audio from YouTube on this. So I apologize for that in advance. It's never as good as when it comes straight to the mixer, but uh, hopefully it'll be okay. And I think... Oh, and we have a shop, like Spaz said. Um, It's... uh, What is it? Teespring. It's a Teespring shop. I'm losing my mind. Uh, It's a Teespring shop. Space hyphen game hyphen junkie. Uh, So uh, head over there. And we're also going to be incorporating some of the swag from that into some new Patreon tiers I am finalizing. Uh, Cause Patreon is also changing their structure. So I figure I should be changing along uh, with it. So that'll be coming soon. Uh, so Alyssa, thank you so much for coming on to talk That's about right. this, this wonderful game. We're just huge fans of it around here. It's really one of the best space games I've played in the last decade. Like seriously. Thank you. That means a lot. And I've played them all, so it's sure you have. It's it's really something special, y'all. If you haven't played it, it's objects in space. It does take some getting used to because there really is nothing else like it, and because there is nothing else like it, that's what makes it so goddamn special. So go buy it; it's great. You will you will probably die a lot, or either that or make bad decisions and have to restart. But that's part of the joy of learning the game. Just. One piece of advice, if you run into a terrorist who offers to pay you 10,000 credits to to run her out of Maru, don't do it. Unless you never want to go to Maru again. <laughs> just, just... To be fair, Maru is a pretty terrible place to visit. You know what? So many missions go there, though. It's like it, you're, you're, you're cutting off your nose despite your face. <laughs> yeah. It's not the you worst know, place, though. 
What I find shocking is that Brian has talked to an actual Australian for two hours and has not yet brought up Mad Max. (laughs) Is there a mission somewhere in the game where you have to like steal some brides and like try to run away with the fuel and because you have to have a, a good, strong Aussie reference in here. Oh, there's definitely some Aussie references. Um, some of the places, some of the place names are named after places here near Sydney and, and whatnot. But uh, I don't think there's any Mad Max references. I think it's mostly because almost all of our references are either, are either about local places or about like other sci-fi things, uh, like specifically wow. space opera type stuff. See, I was thinking the game Logistical. Have you ever heard of that one, Alyssa? No. It's it's a it's it's a puzzle. It's kind of a puzzle game where you have towns on a map and you have to move things around that other towns produce to solve a town. Like this town wants apples. That town makes apples. Get that town apples before they run out of apples and you've solved that town. It's like a fascinating little achievement heavy puzzle game. And the base game is the entire capitalism Tetris. But the base game is the entire map of Australia. So I've, I've learned more about new South Wales. (laughs) Because of that game, than any other than any other Australian heavy movie or anything I've ever. Watched. So yeah, most Australian media tends not to focus on Australia very much. Like even our movies don't make it too clear where you are. It's just like you're in generic suburbs or you're in generic bushland, and someone's trying to kill you. Well, I learned a lot about the geography from Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I must say. So I'm kidding. I'm so kidding. I really didn't. Best movie that ever came out of out of Australia is Howling Three: The Marsupial. Oh God! Do I want to know? Yeah, anyway. instead of werewolves, they're they're Tasmanian tiger people. Unfortunately, I think the best movies that come out of Australia are made in Australia, but not set in Australia. Like both The Matrix and Dark City were shot like a couple of kilometers from my house, and are Wait, dark and amazing. Dark City was. Oh yeah. In oh, fact, God. Dark City has more, more location shooting, so there's a few places that you can see that are very distinctly Sydney. Uh, they've just dressed it up oh, for the 40s style. I love that movie so very much. So, oh, yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, my God. that's I think it's better than The Matrix in a lot of ways. Uh, oh, I, I agree. I think there's there were three movies that came out about the same time. There's The Matrix, Dark City, and uh, 13th Floor, and I think they're all amazing in their own way, but The Matrix right. kind of overshadowed all of them. Yeah, it really did, but I think Dark City is the best of them personally yeah especially director's cut um (laughs) anyway folks thank you so much for listening and watching and uh we will see you in a couple of days and next week have a great night y'all I'm